Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI-HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. See you next week. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 4th. Reinhard Maria Rilke was born on this day in 1875. He was a poet, a novelist, an essayist. He primarily wrote in German and in French, but his work has been translated into numerous other languages, and he's become particularly studied and beloved in the English-speaking world in a way that's not really all that common among non-English language poets. He was his parents' only surviving child, and for a lot of his early life, his mother actually dressed him in skirts. She was trying to recover from the death of his older sister who had died as a baby. His first formal education was at a military school, although it wasn't a particularly good fit for him. It wasn't just because of his temperament, which was not well-suited to being at a military school, it was also because of his health. He had a series of chronic illnesses that affected him throughout his life. Health problems led to his being discharged from the second military school that he attended. He went on to study philosophy and art. And he wasn't a particularly good student. He moved from one university to another, not being all that engaged with the work that he was doing. And he also started writing when he was still a young man. His early work, though, was really derivative of the writing of other poets, to the point that some critics today don't really describe it as derivative. They describe it as plagiarized. But he started to reinvent himself when he was 22. Part of this was through a relationship with Lou Andreas Salome, who was a writer who was connected to numerous other writers. She had a whole reputation for being a just astonishing woman, she was also married, but 
the relationship inspired him to basically remake his whole life. At the age of 25, he married a sculptor named Clara Westhoff, and they had a child together. Although they didn't live together for very long, a lot of their marriage took place through letters, and he would later go on to describe marriage as two people protecting one another's solitude. For a lot of his life, including during and before his marriage, he just moved continually. At one point, he lived in 25 different places over the span of five years. He learned numerous languages. He pursued passionate relationships with women in all of these places. Later on, he started writing poems about philosophy and God and beauty, using imagery to express his ideas. His writings on God, though, we should be clear, They're not so much about religion or a divine figure. They're more about God as a universal consciousness or as a life force or as a natural presence, not so much as a divine being. He also had friendships and working relationships with so many other philosophers and writers and poets. One of them was Auguste Rodin, who was a major influence on his work. He also worked as Rodin's secretary for a time, but was let go after Rodin alleged that Rilke was answering his letters without his permission. Rilke died of leukemia on December 29th of 1926, and there's a story that he pricked his finger on a rose, and that when he did that, this led to an infection that hastened his death. It's not totally clear whether that is a real event or apocryphal. After his death, though, he became hugely influential to poets in multiple languages, with some of them naming him as the greatest poet of his age. When it comes to English-language readers, though, only a few of his poems were really available in very good English-language translations until the 1970s. Instead, a lot of the admiration for him comes from his prose, In particular, the Letters to a Young Poet, which was a response to the aforesaid young poet's request for advice. These weren't just about writing, though. They were also really about life. Rilke's reputation as one of being just a profoundly thoughtful and conscientious, introspective person, someone who really crafted himself into the person that he wanted to be and in the process transformed himself into a remarkable poet. Although he definitely has detractors, people who instead read him as a pretentious womanizer rather than a more intuitive and passionate soul. Thanks very much to Eves Jeffcoat for her research work on today's show. And thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a mystery at sea that still persists till today. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X. 
and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Welcome back. I'm your host, Eves, and you're tuned into This Day in History class, a show that takes history and squeezes it into bite-sized stories. The day was December 4th, 1865. Edith Louisa Cavill was born in England. Cavill was a nurse known for hiding Allied soldiers from Germans during World War I. Cavill was the oldest of four children, When she was young, Edith was educated at home, mostly by her father, who was the vicar in Swardiston, where she was born. She later went to boarding school, then worked as a governess for an Essex family. Edith spent time traveling in Switzerland, Bavaria, and Saxony, gaining an interest in hygiene and medicine. In Brussels, Cavill worked as a governess, but when her father got sick, she went back to England to care for him. Cavill soon began her nursing education and started gaining experience in hospital work. She worked in different hospitals in the London area, and she took jobs as a private nurse. Belgian surgeon Antoine Depage invited Cavill to Belgium to help with the direction of his new nursing school, which would be influenced by the model developed by Florence Nightingale. As an English-trained nurse who was fluent in French, Cavill foot the bill for who he was looking for. She became the director of nurse training at the Birkendale Medical Institute, and within a few years was working as a nurse trainer at several hospitals and schools. Cavill also began publishing the nursing journal La Fermière. But as the First World War began, Germany invaded Belgium and entered Brussels. Her clinic and nursing school were turned into a Red Cross hospital. She cared for wounded German soldiers. When a couple of injured English soldiers ended up in her clinic in November of 1914, she hid them and helped them escape to the neutral Netherlands. As more Allied soldiers began showing up at her clinic, she continued to shelter them and assist them in escaping to the Netherlands. Many of the soldiers she helped were British and French. She began working with an underground network of people who supplied the Allied soldiers with food, money, clothes, and fake documents. Soldiers were moved from location to location in the network, and Cavill's clinic was one stop. The network also assisted French and Belgian men who were of military age that feared being imprisoned by the Germans. Cavill's resistance work in harboring Allied soldiers and helping them escape was against German military law. But the system broke down when members of the network were caught and linked to unlawful activity. Cavill was under suspicion, and she was arrested on August 5, 1915. She spent weeks in solitary confinement, and she signed depositions admitting her guilt. She was charged with war treason and helping soldiers escape to Britain, which was at war with Germany. That meant she was aiding an enemy. Cavill went on trial and was found guilty. She was sentenced to death and executed by firing squad on October 12th. 
After her execution, Germany used her death to discourage resistance. The British, on the other hand, used her execution as propaganda to encourage enlistment in the British Army. People around the world denounced that the Germans had executed a nurse and believed the punishment was too harsh. After the war was over, Cavill's remains were exhumed and transported to England. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. And if you would like to write me a letter, you can scan it, turn it into a PDF, and send it to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that unveils history one day at a time. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're investigating how one of the most acclaimed art museums in the world made the rookie mistake of displaying a piece of art upside down. The day was December 4th, 1961. The director of exhibitions at New York's Museum of Modern Art realized that a picture had been hanging upside down for the past 57 days. The work in question was titled Le Bateau, or The Boat. It had been made by Henri Matisse, one of the most influential French artists of the 20th century. Matisse died in 1954, and by the end of his life, his poor health had prevented him from painting. Rather than stop creating, the artist shifted his focus to the medium of paper-cut collage. He would cut out pieces of paper and arrange them with gouache paint to create abstract scenes or designs composed of simple lines and shapes. 
This late career work was displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in an exhibition called The Last Works of Matisse, Large-Cut Gouaches. The exhibition opened on October 8, 1961, and for nearly two months, no one noticed that one of the key pieces had been hung the wrong way. In the museum's defense, Le Bateau is a little confusing at first glance. Executed in 1953, just a year before the artist's death, it depicts the image of a blue boat sailing on curving purple waves with clouds above it. The bottom half of the picture shows a stylized version of the boat and clouds to represent their reflections in the water. That symmetry is a big reason why the picture was hung upside down. Either way you look at it, the image looks almost the same. Le Bateau was one of 40 gouache paper cuts brought over from Paris and hung on the ground floor of the Museum of Modern Art. It was the only one to be hung incorrectly, and the error went unnoticed by the curators, the rest of the museum staff, and even by Matisse's son, Pierre, who was himself an art dealer. All told, more than 116,000 visitors toured the exhibit and never caught the mistake. But one person did. Her name was Genevieve Aubert, a Wall Street stockbroker and former resident of Paris who proved a bit more observant than most. She came to the Matisse show three times in total, and from her first visit she couldn't shake the feeling that something was off about Le Bateau. On her third visit, she finally put her finger on the problem. She realized that the boat at the top of the image was less complex than the boat on the bottom. It didn't make sense that Matisse would make the reflection more defined than the boat itself, which only left one option. It had been installed upside down. Aubert bought a copy of the exhibition catalog and found that, sure enough, the image in the catalog didn't match the one on the wall. She took her proof to the nearest museum security guard, but he remained unconvinced, arguing that it was open to interpretation, and also that maybe the catalog had been misprinted. He told her, quote, You don't know what's up, and you don't know what's down, and neither do we. We can't be responsible for the printers. As you might imagine, Aubert wasn't satisfied with that response, so she made her way to the next guard, who directed her to the information desk. However, since it was Sunday evening, the curatorial staff wasn't available to speak with her. Rather than return for a fourth visit, Aubert decided to voice her complaint to the New York Times. The next day, on December 4th, the paper called Monroe Wheeler, the museum's director of exhibitions, and gave him the bad news. He was understandably embarrassed, and when asked what had led to the error, he replied, quote, just carelessness. Of course, that carelessness wasn't all his own. Alicia Legg had been the assistant curator responsible for the installation, so it was her call on how to hang the picture, though of course Wheeler had final approval. Legg told the New York Times that the confusion had less to do with the front of the picture than with what was on the back of it. The reverse side had labels from previous exhibitions that were put on upside down, 
as well as deep screw holes, which suggested it had been shown upside down before. When Wheeler ordered the picture to be re-hung, he and Leg took a closer look and found fainter, less noticeable screw holes on the correct side of the frame. The mistake had been fixed within two hours of Wheeler being notified, but unfortunately, very few people got to see the correction. The exhibition was set to close that very day, which means that Le Bateau was only displayed correctly for a few hours before it and the rest of the exhibit was taken down. The New York Times ran a story on the blunder the next day, much to the museum's chagrin, I'm sure. When Pierre Matisse heard the news, he said, quote, Mrs. Aubert should be given a medal. Although she never got one, she'd be happy to know that Le Bateau is now part of the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art, where it hangs, at last, right side up. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about art history today than you did yesterday. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks as always to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.